0: Turn with me once more to the book of Acts where in chapter 20 this evening we'll pick up with the Apostle Paul still on his third missionary journey and still for the moment in the city of Ephesus on the western coast of Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. Acts chapter 20. Paul is, as I say still in Ephesus for the moment in verse 1, but after the uproar in the amphitheater that we saw in the previous chapter, after that vociferous opposition from Demetrius and the craftsmen and the rabble of the city, Paul is now going to leave Ephesus, and we will see him heading west into Macedonia and Greece, visiting the churches that had been planted by the Lord on his previous travels, and then we'll see him actually retrace his steps tonight and head back in much the same way in which he'd come on his way back to the Jewish heartland and to the city of Jerusalem in particular. Uh, So he's going to go out this way and then he's going to come back in the same way that he came. So read with me now about all these back and forth travels beginning at Ephesus there in Acts 20 verse 1 and continuing down through verse 16. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go into Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the window sill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost." Father, um, pray now that um, as Paul spoke to the people gathered in Troas that night and as you worked powerfully among them, uh, that I would be able to speak your word tonight and that you'd work powerfully among us. That we would know your greatness and your goodness tonight. And that we'd be prepared to join you in your work in your gospel work in this city and in the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to just consider this passage tonight under three simple headings. Three simple headings, and as we did last Wednesday, we'll dive right into them. The first of which is simply this, many miles this is a passage that takes us over many miles. I'm sure you can see already why I say that, because we find Paul just in these few verses in Ephesus, and then traveling through Macedonia, and then down into Greece, and then back up through Macedonia, and then across to Troas, and on to Assos, and Mytilene, and Samos, and Miletus, all of these different places. And even if you didn't know where they all were, you would still be able to tell that paul and his companions are doing a good bit of traveling on this journey and you'll get an even better impression if as we've done before in our studies of acts you'll just turn again for a moment to the back of your bible to the maps or the back of the maps the back of the pew bible to the maps and find again a map of paul's missionary journeys in the pew bible its map number 9 Somewhere near the middle of the page, you will find the city of Ephesus, where we begin in verse 1. It's on the west coast of Asia Minor. That's where Paul sets out at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, And if you trace the line from Ephesus of Paul's third missionary journey, you'll see him heading northwest. And you'll be able to follow on the map the journeys that we just read about in the first 16 verses of Acts 20. He heads northwest to Macedonia, probably visiting the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, where he'd planted churches on his previous journey, and then he heads south into the Grecian peninsula, likely stopping to encourage the saints that he led to Christ in Athens and Corinth, and then from there he plans to head east back to Syria, back presumably to Antioch, his home church, but as we read... Uh, in chapter 20, verse 3, a plot was formed against him such that he rerouted and went back the same way that he came, back through Greece and Macedonia up to Philippi, from which he sails east and travels back along the coast of Asia Minor on his way toward Israel. That's a lot of traveling. And it is, as I said, many miles, some of them by sea, some of them, many of them by land, uh, and without any of the modern conveniences that make travel easy for us today. And perhaps looking at the map helps you to see even better just what kind of trip this was. But even looking at the map tonight, we still might not comprehend these distances Fully. It's one thing to look at them, it's another thing to be able to envision how far that really is. And so I did a little toying around today on Google Maps, trying to estimate how many miles Paul journeyed in the 16 verses that we just read, and then trying to find a comparison that would make sense to us and help us see the grueling nature of these travels. And what I'm about to give is an estimate. It's impossible to know exactly all the roads that Paul took and precisely all the miles that his journey carried him. But what I came up with as a ballpark illustration of the length of this journey that we've read about tonight was to encourage you tonight to imagine yourself traveling by foot, maybe a little bit on horseback, but probably mostly by foot, up Interstate 71 to Cleveland, Ohio where you will then board a white-sailed ship and hug the coast of Lake Erie north and east past Erie, Pennsylvania, all the way to Buffalo, New York, just south of Niagara Falls. And then as you land at Buffalo, you will go 70 or so miles further to the east over to Rochester, New York, where you will board another sailing ship that will carry you north and east across Lake Ontario, landing on the Canadian side, from which point you will then hoof it still further north and east, another hundred miles or so, all the way up to the Canadian capital of Ottawa. And then you turn around, as Paul did, and retrace your steps and come all the way home. So imagine going from our church parking lot to the Canadian capital and back again, give or take a few miles here or there, and most of it, much of it anyway on foot with some sea travel mixed in here and there. That's what Paul and his companions are doing in the span of these 16 verses tonight. And mind you that both when they set out from Ephesus in verse 1 and when they arrive at Miletus in verse 16, Paul is still a long way from where he began, a long way from home, and a long way from Jerusalem where he's heading. So Paul, both in this evening's passage and beyond it, traveled many, many miles, didn't he? For the sake of the gospel. Just imagine how long it must have taken. You picture yourself going from here to Ottawa. On boat and on foot. And imagine how long that would take you. Imagine how long Paul is away from home. Imagine the conveniences that he has to do without moving from place to place so often. Imagine the toll that all of this would have taken on his body. But he did it. He did it because... First of all, he was eager to get the gospel out to more and more people in more and more places, and he did it in this first part of Acts 20 tonight because he wanted to go back to many of those places and disciple the converts that had been made on the previous travels. Paul had a heart for the gospel that carried him across many, many miles through many, many inconveniences and many, many hardships, so that he might speak the word of Christ to those who hadn't heard, and so that he might speak it again to those who had heard. And I say that in all that, he's, he's a model for us. His zeal, his desire to speak God's word is a model for us, traveling all over the place, enduring many different challenges for the sake of the name of Jesus. Let us be willing to do the same in our measure. Now, some of us in this room perhaps need to take up Paul's missionary mantle and actually find ourselves literally traveling many miles across land and sea to preach the word to those who haven't heard and to preach it again to those who have and further disciple them like the Shermans hope to do in Zambia sometime soon. Some of us need to do that perhaps. Traveling like Paul did. But even if God is not calling you to be a missionary, even if he's not calling you to pick up stakes and traverse many miles for the sake of the gospel, you can still emulate Paul's effort. That's the main thing here. These many, many miles represent effort for the sake of the gospel. How much effort are you willing to give for Jesus? You can be willing to work hard for the gospel like Paul. You can work hard to get the gospel out right here in Cincinnati, where you work, where you live, where you play, where you shop. You can work hard at your servant ministry role here in our church. You can work hard at training your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You can work hard at traversing the cultural miles that may exist between you and people around you who need to know Jesus right in our own backyard. I'm simply amazed when I read about Paul and his companions here in Acts 20, traveling all over the place. Now, I understand that they'd never heard of automobiles and airplanes. All they knew was foot travel and sea travel, and so maybe traveling all these miles didn't seem quite as long to them as it would to us who rarely even walk one mile at a time today. They were more used to this sort of travel than we are. So it may not have seemed quite as daunting to them as it does to us, but it was still a long journey that Paul undertook and hard work to do it. And it challenges me to be willing to work hard for the Lord's cause, to be willing to go out of my way, to speak for Jesus, to be willing to be tired at the end of the day because I've been working for the Lord, to be willing to put up with inconvenience or hardship for the sake of the Lord. And I hope Paul's example challenges you in the same way. He traveled many miles. That's the first thing to notice in this passage. And now the second heading we will call many partners. Many miles. In this chapter and many partners as well, the unfamiliar and hard to pronounce names here in this passage are not only attached to places that Paul went, but to people who went with him. In other words, we didn't just read about the Middleines and the Miletuses of the world; we also read about the Sopaters and the Secunduses as well. These are some of the names of Paul's traveling companions and he had several of them on this third missionary journey just let me point them out to you first of all back in chapter 19 verse 22 on Sunday we read of Timothy and Erastus who when Paul was first planning the trip that we read about tonight these two men were sent ahead of him into Macedonia to begin the work And then also on Sunday in chapter 19, verse 29, we learned about two more companions, men called Gaius and Aristarchus, who were also traveling companions of Paul. And then tonight in verse 4, we read about four more of Paul's traveling companions. Just listen to the verse and see if you can pick out their names. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. So we have Timothy and Aristarchus and Gaius, whom we've already seen in chapter 19, but there are four more names on the list here, aren't there? Sopater of Berea, Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. And then in verse 6, actually verse 5 as well, you'll notice that Luke, our narrator, begins telling the story once again in the first person. These had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Verse 6, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So Luke is now part of Paul's traveling team as well. He's part of the we. He had traveled with Paul on Paul's second missionary journey and evidently stayed behind when Paul was working in Philippi, and Luke continued to work there, presumably. But now, as Paul travels back through Philippi on this third missionary journey, Luke rejoins the team. So just count them up with me. There's Erastus, there's Timothy, there's Gaius, there's Aristarchus, there's Sopater, Secundus, Tychicus, Trophimus, Luke, and Paul. Ten men are now part of this missionary enterprise. And note also that most all of them seem to have come from the churches that Paul had planted on his various travels. They came from Berea, and Thessalonica, and Derby, and Asia. All of this tells me three things about This missionary work. Number one, Paul was committed to teamwork. Paul was committed to partnership. Paul did not intend to work alone. He was always drawing new men into the gospel work. The second thing these men tell me is that there were many men who were willing to be a part of such a team. They saw what Paul was doing and they said, let me help you. And then thirdly, we learn here that the local churches that Paul had planted were willing to give them up, evidently, and send them out to the mission field. And I think there are important implications in observing all this partnership, implications both for the work of the local church and for the cause of missions. Paul's emphasis on partnership, the way that Paul gathered around himself a team, is instructive as a paradigm. Not just for how missionaries ought to do their work, that is true, but also for how all gospel work really flourishes best. Local churches, just like missionary enterprises, need a team of men and women who are godly and who are committed and who are willing to lend their hands and their sweat to the work of the gospel. That's why when the New Testament speaks of of the officers of the church. It refers to elders, plural, and deacons, plural, because God's design is a team. It's also why Paul spoke so powerfully and so beautifully about the church as a body in 1 Corinthians 12, in which there are many members, each with a different and important role to play. The gospel flourishes in the environment of teamwork, teamwork, When there are many partners. Now, we've said all this before, I know, even in these studies of the book of Acts, but it's in the text again tonight, and it bears repeating. The gospel flourishes where there are many partners. And it's apropos, isn't it, that we should run up against this truth again tonight because we're in the middle of that time of the year when we, as church leaders, are asking you to become partners again with us in 2014, asking you to consider what position you might play, as it were, on the team next year, what role you have to contribute to the gospel partnership that is Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. I hope you'll consider that carefully, and I hope you'll be as willing to do your part as were Secundus and Sopater and Gaius to do theirs. These men along with Paul, were, to borrow from the title of Stephen Ambrose's book and the popular miniseries from a few years ago, these men were a band of brothers doing this gospel thing together, thick or thin, across all those miles amidst all the opposition and the trial and the inconvenience. Far from home, we find Erastus and Timothy and Gaius and Aristarchus and Luke and Sopater and Secundus and Tychicus and Trophimus and Paul, working together, sweating together, traveling together, preaching together, serving the Lord together as partners. And I just want to ask you that you would beseech the Lord that our church and our leaders would be that kind of band of brothers and sisters. Would you pray this for our elders and our deacons and for those men whom The Lord willing will come in days ahead to join us on that team. And would you pray for every member that all of us will be actively involved in partnering for the sake of the gospel, doing our part, finding our part in the body here on this pleasant ridge. And then would you also ask the Lord if it would be for the greater furtherance of the gospel that we would be willing to give up some of our Tychicus's and Timothy's like the churches in Asia and Derby and Thessalonica and Berea did? Would you ask God to raise up missionaries and ministers from our midst and to give us the grace to part with them so that they might become part of a new band of brothers sharing the good news in some needy place the way these men did? The gospel flourishes at home and abroad in an atmosphere of teamwork And that means that we, like Secundus, like Erastus, like Timothy, like Aristarchus, and like the churches that sent them, we, each of us, must be willing to do our part. So then. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God sent his son into the world to be tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, to be sin on our behalf, to bear our sins in his body on the cross, to be raised from the dead such that we too might walk in newness of life. That good news was so vital and so valuable to Paul and to his companions and to the early churches that it was worth many miles of travel in order to get the news out. And it was worth many partners joining the cause. And then finally, in verses 7 through 12 tonight, that news about Jesus was also worth many words as well. Many miles, many partners, many words. Paul and his team, now on their way across toward Jerusalem, stopped off for a week in the city of Troas, to the north of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And though we're not told exactly how, there evidently had formed in that city a Christian church. It's possible that the church was formed when Paul was spending his three years in Ephesus, at which time, as we read in chapter 19, verse 10, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, and all who lived in Asia included the citizens of Troas. And so here we find some of them in chapter 20, Verse 7, gathering together on the Lord's Day on the first day of the week. And perhaps it would seem enjoying the Lord's Supper together as well. That may be what's meant by they were uh, gathered together to break bread. But this is going to be Paul's only Lord's Day with them because he's leaving in the morning, we're told. And yet, he has so much to say to them, so much instruction, so much encouragement that he wants to pass along to them that he cannot fit it all neatly into a 40-minute sermon. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, that makes me feel a little bit better about sometimes keeping you a little longer than I intended. But Paul talked so long that in verse 9, this young man called Eutychus fell asleep. Now that happens all the time, right? Some of you may be fighting it even right now. But the difference in Troas was that young Eutychus was not sitting in a nice cushy pew. He was sitting in the windowsill. And the window was evidently hanging open. And they were meeting in an upper room on the third floor. And the lad was perhaps too young to have a wife sitting next to him, elbowing him awake, right? And so we watch him there as his head begins to nod and then jerks back up as he fights back his drowsiness. And then his head nods again and jerks back up. And so it goes maybe five or six times until finally Paul's sermon has gone too long and Eutychus can't fight it anymore. And over, he begins to lean and then begins to tilt to one side, and then down he goes. Now, Eutychus is somewhat of a comical character to us, I think. First, because many of us have been there, right, battling sleep during a sermon. And also because, happily, the Lord worked a miracle after his body hit the pavement so that in the end there was no harm done to him. But it wasn't a laughing matter that night, was it, verse 9? Because as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Dead. And yet, this death in the church at Troas gave a splendid opportunity for God to show his power, as so often do the difficulties that we face in the church today. A splendid opportunity for God to show his power. God raises this boy from the dead so that the believers in this city will know that their God is powerful and so that they will know that their God is good. That's what we learn very simply from the miracle here in Acts 20, isn't it? The Lord is good and the Lord is powerful. And seeing it, we, like the believers at Troas, should be greatly comforted. That we have a God who can work miracles. That we have a God who raises the dead. That we have a God for whom nothing is impossible and no circumstances too far gone. You and I must remember that the next time our hopes or our dreams like Eutychus seem to go out the window and smash into pieces on the pavement below. Remember Eutychus and the miracle of God in his life. The Lord may not work your turnaround as immediately as he did here he may not always in fact work it in this life but there is a day coming when the dead in Christ will all rise and when Jesus will make all things new so there is a great lesson to be drawn from this mishap that was precipitated by Paul's many words and especially from the miracle that God did in the aftermath But is there anything to learn from Paul's many words themselves, besides the caution that I shouldn't go on too long tonight? What do we learn from the fact that Paul kept preaching until the middle of the night? Well, I think what we're to learn here from Paul prolonging his message until midnight is that... The teaching that Paul had to share with these people, the things that he wanted to say to them about the Lord and about his Christ and about his ways and will for us, the things that Paul had to say to them that night must have been of utmost importance. It was vital that Paul provide all the biblical instruction he could before his ship left the next morning, even if that meant going on late into the night so vital, in fact, that not only did Paul preach until midnight when Eutychus fell out of the window, but also note that while, or when the excitement of Eutychus' fall and the excitement of the miracle of his resurrection had settled back down, when everything calmed back down, the group went right back inside and right back upstairs, verse 11, and they broke bread and then they kept on discussing for several more hours. Isn't that amazing? And I just wonder, I just wonder if the Word of God is that important to us. I realize that circumstances don't usually dictate that we have to stay up into the wee hours of the morning in order to teach or hear God's Word. But I wonder if we would, if that's what it took for us to hear the Word of the Lord. I wonder how hungry we really are to be taught the Bible wonder if we're as eager as Paul was and as the folks in Troas evidently were to hear. Now, you are all here on a Wednesday night, of course, so many of you perhaps are hungrier and more eager than most. And I thank God for that. I thank God that you're here. But I urge you not to let that hunger slip away from you. And that happens sometimes, doesn't it? Don't take the word of God for granted. Don't be like the man in Proverbs 27, 7, who's been so accustomed to having food at his disposal plenty enough that he can have a honeycomb laid on the plate before him and say nonchalantly, "Uh, I think I'll pass tonight. Paul prolonged his message until midnight because the word that he was speaking was so important. The honey that he was scraping from the comb of God's word was so sweet that he just could not bring himself to put away the spatula. And I wonder if the news of Jesus, the word of God, is that sweet to us that we'd be eager to feed on it long into the night if need be. I wonder if it is so sweet to us too that we're eager to feed it to others as eager as Paul was that night in Troas. And I know, as I said, that circumstances are different so that you don't usually need to talk all night long in order to tell your friends and family about Jesus. You're not leaving in the morning and you'll have plenty of other chances to keep on. And in addition, they might not be quite as willing as the folks at Troas were to keep listening if you did that, right? But even though we don't need to do what Paul did, is there something in us that just wells up with desire such that we have more to say to our friends about Jesus than we feel we can possibly say to them. Such that we cannot find room in the stationery to write all that we'd wish to write about the Lord Jesus and about the sweetness of following him. See, that's the great thing that stands out to me really in this passage this evening as a whole. The passion that Paul and his companions had to teach and spread and disseminate and feed people with the word of God. The word of God and the message of Jesus were so precious to them, so sweet to them, that they were willing to travel all those many miles around the concave coastline of the Aegean Sea, taking the good seed and spreading it and making sure that it took firm root. The Word of God, the message of Jesus were so precious that many partners were drawn into the work as well. I want to be a part of this. And many churches were willing to send them to it. And the Word of God, the message of Jesus were so precious that Paul had many words to say about it all. So eager was he to share the truth. The truth is worthy worthy to be shared, isn't it? There is a God. And he created us, and he loves us, and he deserves our obedience and our honor and our praise. And though his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, we, none of us, honor him as God or give thanks as we should. We break his laws. We sin against his person. And the wages of sin is death. But, that's not the end of the verse. The wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to live sinlessly where we have not. And in the great exchange of the cross of Calvary, the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, to bear our sins in his body, to bear our guilt on his own person, to bear the wages of our sin on his own back, receiving the death penalty that we deserve from a holy God so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, so that he takes our punishment and we go free. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And not only did Christ die for us, but he's risen, he's alive, interceding for us at the Father's right hand and residing by his Holy Spirit in the hearts of all who believe so that we have new life and new hope and new priorities and new desires and a new family and a new destiny. And someday he'll return and give us new bodies and establish for his people new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And in the meantime, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, hasn't he? All of which find their yes and their amen in Jesus. Promises like he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God will give us his son, what else would he withhold from us? This is Christianity, isn't it? This is the message that Paul and his companions preached of Jesus and the love of God and the cross of Calvary and the resurrection and new life in Christ and eternal life to come. Blessings all mine says the hymn writer Thomas Chisholm, with 10,000 beside. This was Paul's message. This was Timothy's message. This was Sopater's message. And this is our message. And I think you'll agree with me tonight that this news is good news. And it is worth for us many miles and many partners and many words, all to the glory of God. Amen.